Okay, well, I'm Keith Ruckhouse. I'm Alex Tsukatos. And we're ready for our third session of the Boulder Bolding, where we are discussing and exploring the idea of steady-state economics. I was just talking with Alec. He explained to me, I wanted to talk a little bit about Herman Daly, and I was under the impression that Herman Daly had influenced Bold, uh, Kenneth Boulding, but the other way Alex says that it was the other way around. So what were some of the influences from of Kenneth, Kenneth Boulding? Where did he get his inspirations for talking about steady state? I think it was uh, somewhat original to him, interestingly oh, enough. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah. And not the only one in right. the world, but certainly, yeah, he was a, a very had a very innovative mind. Okay. Yes. Well, that's good to know. I wanted to just uh, say a few things about Herman Daly. Now, you wouldn't say Herman Daly is a disciple of Kenneth Boulding, but they, he just... No, I would say that uh, Herman Daly's uh, major influence, if you will, was, and who, he, who his advisor was is this Romanian economist by the name of Nicholas Georgescu Rogan. Ooh, big name. Yes, big name. Okay. Yeah, but uh, he was aware of Kenneth Boulding's all, ideas and all all his writings made references to Kenneth Boulding. Okay. All the writings that I've read of Herman Daly, he makes references to Kenneth okay. Boulding. Yes, perhaps Herman Daly's contribution to steady state is is bringing it into a cohesive economic thought. One piece that I found on Herman Daly says that. Uh, other than the the term steady state, it's also called ecological economics. Yes, and he's he's often called an an economist turned eco visionary. Yes, and the interesting thing about how uh, Mr. Daly had codified a lot of the ideas around steady state is really and the, and we Alec, you've already talked about this how. The economists in their systems, especially neoclassic economics, which has dominated uh, our world today, tends to work with a paradigm that sort of sees the cosmos as, as a machine, and therefore markets work like machines work. Mr. Daly says, no, we have this inside out. We, we ought to base our economics on the global ecosystem and not trying to force the global ecosystem into our little paradigm, uh, economic paradigms. He talks about how the current system is underpinned by the ignorance and denial of planetary limits. And Alec, you talked about that. Yes, yes. Here's another little piece where it's Herman Daly's three rules of steady state economics. And uh, I'm just gonna go through these and you can comment. Uh, first rule, sustainable use of renewable resources means that the pace should not be faster than the rate at which they regenerate. A second, it's like a forest, for example. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so you can't, you can't deforest the, the forest for lumber faster than the trees can grow back. That's right. Okay. Number two rule is sustainable use of non-renewable resources like fossil fuels. Yes. Means that the pace should not be faster than the rate 
at which their renewable substitutes can be put in place. Yes. So every time you take out a barrel of oil from the ground or coal from the ground, then you must have in place something that will substitute for that, namely a solar panel or a wind panel or or some other kind that we invent later on of ways in which we can get energy that we can't anymore get energy from right. uh, the cold. Because and that maybe could you, just be measured in megawatts of electricity. Oh, absolutely, however, yes, yes. Yeah. It's, it's, that one is very easy yeah. to measure. Okay, yeah. and so uh, his last rule of steady state is sustainable a sustainable rate of emission for pollution and wastes means that it should not be faster than the pace at which natural systems can absorb them, recycle them, or render them harmless. Yes, quite so. So if you put some uh, bucket of dirty water into uh, the river, you must allow for the river to uh, clean that water up so that it is as clean as when you put dirt in it. So that's the idea. Otherwise, you accumulate uh, garbage. Right. All right. Which we call pollution. Yeah. So probably another one, uh, and this is just a a brief summary of Herman Daly, but uh, one of the other contributions that he had, and it's very much related to uh, Boulding's uh, working peace in the world, waging peace rather than waging war, is he questions whether economic growth is connected to the well-being of mankind. And this is, this is a movement all over the world where we should uh, get away from measuring gross domestic product as the measurement of growth and prosperity yeah. and use some other index. Uh, Daly and John B. Cobb developed the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, as as maybe an index. I know that there's other indexes called happiness index. And yes, things there like are those. Plenty, plenty of those, and people are working and doing really very good work uh, at that, so right. that you measure well-being, happiness, even prosperity, rather than standard of living or per capita income. Correct. Now, the per capita income idea came very late in economics, um, it came during the Great Depression. We didn't have measurements of how the how well the economy was doing in terms of gro- growth, what rate of growth it was having, uh, because essentially of the model that economists had of the capitalist uh, economy, and namely that they derived from the model that the economy would always grow. <laughs> Okay. So there was no reason to measure. The only reason to measure is to see whether or not what we say will happen actually is happening, namely growth. Okay. And that's why the GDP and all other measurements of growth were invented essentially during the Great Depression to measure how the policies would actually, what results they would would produce. Are the policies really ones that produce results? Well, how can you know if it produced results if you can't measure? Right. 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 So it was a measurement 
of economic activity, not a measurement of uh, well-being. Okay. But economists, not having any criteria for well-being, uh, <laughs> use the one that was very practical at the time. In other words, they used the rate of growth or GDP growth to be the measurement of well-being. Okay. And as we know, you know, people in our society love to talk about how we're the most prosperous and wealthy society on the planet, and yet we're perhaps one of the more miserable societies on the planet, and, and uh, as reflected in what they're calling uh, deaths of despair that are on the rise in our country. And suicides and uh, yeah. Yeah, addictions yeah. and uh, all Crime that gives, and, yeah. All right. So last time, Alec presented us with about 12 categories or items or topics for breaking down the whole idea of steady state economics. Today, we want to talk about one of those. And it was not the first one on our list, but Alec feels like, well, why do you want to talk about that one first? Yeah, I think that that is... Uh the most basic one of all of the requirements for a steady state, if we do not attend to the issue of distribution of income and wealth and the inequality, the, the growing inequality, then we can't possibly have a steady state. Okay, so that is our topic for today is economic inequality. Mostly I would like to say, Income and wealth distribution and its relationship to human well-being. Okay. There are two books that I want to refer to because they produce some uh, very good information. One is called The Spirit Level by two British epidemiologists, Richard Wilkinson and Kate Piquette and it's called The Spirit Level, they make a list of things that can be the result of very bad or unequal distribution of income and wealth. Now, epidemiologists are not econ economists. No, they're not economists. They are essentially biologists and sometimes physicians who study uh, how uh, certain diseases are spread in the world. Okay, and yeah. is there really... So they here, want to relate how... Yeah, we're how, talking about social diseases okay. in the sense of... Uh, like... In mental the, health, for example. Okay. Uh, physical health, uh, obesity, uh, educational performance, teenage births, violence imprisonment and punishment, social mobility, and other dysfunctions of society. So they have amassed uh, wonderful, wonderful studies and statistics that show that every one of those gets to be worse the more unequal the distribution of income and wealth. So uh, that's one point, I think, that re, re, uh, 
argues in favor of redistributing income and wealth. By the way, this might be a good point to make the distinction between income and wealth. Income is a certain amount of uh, income that comes over a period of time. Wealth is the value of your assets. So you add up the value of your uh, capital, the value of your land, the value of your jewels, the value of Correct. your copyrights, etc. So like you end when up you go to your financial advisor and he reviews your wealth and right. which is he sometimes says, a bit shocking to go, well, you you are worth yeah, this, this much. amount of money. That's right. <laughs> You, uh, uh, and so, and uh, income there is how much you get from that wealth on a, on a, on an annual basis or right. a weekly basis or okay. what have you. So we're talking about both of those. All right. The second issue uh, that comes up is with a second book by Sam Pizzicati, a max, uh, the case for a maximum wage. What he's arguing there is to deal with the issue of income and wealth distribution, not after the income and wealth is distributed, but beforehand. And the model that he has, even though he's not a medical professional at all, he's an economist, is uh, the model of uh, medicine, which says it's much better both for the person that gets sick, but also for society because it costs less to, to prevent okay. uh, a disease from occurring rather than, right. uh, than go in afterwards. Right. And, and, and I'm, all, I'm, I'm thinking uh, of a current situation in which a presidential candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, has been saying we shouldn't have billionaires and, or yes. we should tax billionaires and you know, and of course, there's people up in arms about that. And yet, I read another economist that said, the real question is, why do we have billionaires in the first place? Where did they get their billions? And yes. that's where a huge part of it. And that's kind of what you're talking about. We, we can't just talk about, okay, a few people amassing ridiculous amounts of wealth while everyone else is, is not, and not address what is going on that this wealth gets accumulated to a very yes. few. Yes, that's the issue that has to do with whether or not this wealth has been earned. In other words, did you provide something of value to the society as a result of your intelligence, your talent, your hard work, your length of work, what have you, that you ought, the moral aspect is said, yes, you ought to be paid this amount of money because you've offered this amount of, uh, of value. So that's the argument in favor of keeping this distribution of income and wealth as is. Because otherwise, you will be interfering with what is earned. And that's considered to be a bad thing. You know, it's just like saying, I'm going to give everybody C's for this class independently of their income, uh, of their uh, effort. And you would say, well, that's terribly unfair, right? I put this amount of effort right. in, into it. 
Uh, I was born with a certain kind of intelligence, etc. And I deserve would be the, the vocabulary. And I think we would all agree that there is some kind of uh, justice in that. So then an answer to that concern is whether or not this money of billionaires was really earned. In what sense was it earned? Okay. So we can have two ways of, it seems to me, of looking at it. One is, was it done legally? And certainly, quite a few uh, billionaires, if not all of them, have earned their money legally. There might be some exceptions, but by and large, you know, there is something to be said for that point of view. Okay. The thing is, though, that it, something can be legal and yet immoral in the sense that you have made it legal, you've made the money legally, but in a certain surreptitious way, you've stolen the money rather Correct. than earned it. Correct. And the argument for that is that uh, it's very difficult to consider that a person can uh, earn a thousand times more than another person. Nobody is a thousand times more talented or m more uh, hardworking or resourceful, etc. Right? And that brings up the question that for me is, uh, is very important when it comes to redistribution of income and wealth or keeping the income and wealth from being so so unequally distributed, is, well, what would be satisfy us as the amount that is just, that is correct? It's not complete equality. Nobody that I have known or read about thinks that complete equality is the right amount, the right correct. thing to, yes. to go. So we all agree that there, is, there are some people that have earned more than others. And the question then becomes, well, what is a, a number that we can agree on? Is it 100 to 1? Is it 50 to 1? Is it 1,000 to 1? Is it 300 to 1? Is it what? Correct. And on what grounds do we come to that conclusion? You know, one of the things that we can do is to try those numbers out and say, okay, let's say that it is uh, 100 to 1. What would that mean for the vast majority of us in terms of the incomes that come our way or, for that matter, the uh, amount that, uh, that we accumulate as wealth so, to keep us going when we are no longer working or if we become sick and we can't work anymore or right. if we uh, have an accident and we can't work anymore so that there is... It's understandable that all of us want to have some kind of safety that we get a certain amount of income, even though we're not working anymore. So what, what are those numbers? So we can try some out and we can say, well, it's 100 to 1. Uh, let's say, so um, what would be an adequate amount of money for a person to live? And so... You know, we can come to a certain number. Let's say it's uh, $10,000 a year, $20,000 a year, $30,000 a year per person. And then say 
a hundred times that, is that sufficient to take care of any kind of right. uh, emergency for something? Yeah. And that more than that is not really necessary. Pull us back in a little bit uh, towards steady state, uh, which is having to do with reversing the idea of having to have constant growth. Now, how, how would what you're suggesting contribute to the idea of steady state? Yes, that then if um, we d- decide in favor of limiting the amount of wealth and income to a certain level, then that would mean that it, we don't need to grow an economy in order to attend to the needs of the poor, because the poor will have been taken care of by this 100 to 1 or 50 to 1 or 10 to 1 uh, ratio. Yeah, so it, uh, my analogy, which I've presented to you before, is the analogy of all boats rise in the tide, and the problem is that the boats of the wealthy just get bigger and b- bigger yes. and requiring more more of a tide to raise them up and sometimes the smaller boats don't make it at all or it's not managed. yeah and 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 anyway if we um, really take seriously steady state economics we cannot afford to grow economies anymore because even though they continue to grow for a certain period of the time then the endpoint is going to collapse. It's not continuous growth and then steady state. Is that if we, from now on, if we continue to grow, we're inevitably we going call to collapse. That a bust. Yes, um, but, but but collapse this time not in terms of the Great Depression of the 30s or the Great Recession of 2008, because that you can you can get out of it eventually. But here we're talking about one where there is no recovery. And there are examples of societies that literally have collapsed. Lots of examples. Yeah. Yes. The the person that has written uh, on it, uh, oh, I forget his name just now, but uh, written a book called Collapse, and he's uh, put together the reasons as to why uh, societies get close to collapse and if they know that they're getting close to collapse, why is it that they're not doing anything about it and allowing themselves to collapse? And the two reasons for allow, allowing uh, for people allowing their society to collapse was one that they dealt with the short run, and the long run was inimical to the short run, which is, in my estimation, where we find ourselves. The short-run benefit of making more money, you know, by all companies and the people who right. invest in it, it, blinds us to the long-term effects of that. Right. Uh, and that's a real good reason for collapse. And the other one, which I find very intriguing, is that what we have to do to get out of the possibility of collapse is goes against are very basic values. So one would be, hey, for the United States and virtually all of uh, of Western countries, this is my property, and what it means to for it to be my property is I can do whatever I please with it. That's the very definition of property, despite certain 
Correct. Um, and hence, one of the big tensions we have in our society is, hey, we need to collectively not drive our cars as much. And then you have That's auto right. dealers saying, well, but our my livelihood is selling cars. So My livelihood is selling cars. Uh, I, I have to... the. Uh, the rents in uh, Denver, let's say, are too high, and therefore I have to uh, live far away from Denver in order to have a job and be able to pay for my uh, rental, and therefore I need a car. So did you want to talk a little bit about uh, maximum wage? Yes. He proposes the notion of that we all accept having to do with moderation, that moderation is a wise thing. And, you know, you can have various examples. You say, okay, uh, I need to eat in order to have a good life. It's also the case that there is too much food or too much wine or too much of or exercise even, even though, you know, they're good, but up to a point, or a medicine is good up to a point and not good uh, beyond that. So why not apply this very same idea to income? That income is uh, a real necessity for the well-being of individuals and families and groups of people, etc. Right. Uh, and so the question then becomes, well, what is too much is there such a thing as too much? And this, in my estimation, is the principal metaphysical, if you will, or philosophical issue of our time, having to introduce the notion of enoughness to contrast with the notion of more is better always. And it seems to me like that that is connected to this economic model that we have to always be growing. I work in a retail store in which we close up shop if people don't continue to buy things. We we buy things, fill up the store so people can buy things from us, and we have to keep that constant flow of merchandise going in and out in, in order for there to be a livelihood. Yes, but the flow doesn't necessarily mean growth, yes? Because if you have growth that is based on resources that are reproducible, including energy that comes from the sun, let's say, and also the output is not just bicycles, but also the recycling of the bicycle. Okay, right. So. Uh, there's nothing to keep us in an economic system, including the market system. It doesn't mean it has to be capitalist because there are um, economic systems that have markets which are not capitalist. Is that you then so structure the market that there is, uh, it, it, you recycle things not because you're a good guy, but you recycle things because. It's in your interest to recycle things because otherwise you'll have to pay a fine or this or that or the other. Right. So you see, so uh, yes, that. But but the notion of growth is not intrinsically bad. The reason that economists are so 
persistent about the goodness of growth is that when economics was born in the latter part of the 18th century, the necessity for all societies was to grow because everybody was poor. And if you took all of the wealth of the very well-to-do and distributed equally amongst people, everybody would be poor. It's not as if you'd elevate uh, very Which many I people. I encountered that in some reading recently, where uh, sort of the accusation against communism and socialism is a, it's a redistribution downward, so we all are poor. And and there's probably people listening going, well, yeah, Alec, you're you're talking about going back to impoverishment. No, but this is the thing, that with the beginning of economics in the 18th century, uh, the latter part of the 18th century, together with technology, the Industrial Revolution, then what you could have is alleviation of poverty because the whole pie increased. Correct. Right. And that is indeed, uh, you know, the argument that Marx had both being in favor of capitalism because it was the engine of growth and then saying, ah, yes, but also the criticism of capitalism because it didn't distribute the uh, the growth uh, very uh, justly, right? So we needed to grow and distribute the the fruits of that growth more equally in order to get everybody out of poverty and into a decent uh, life. So, so, so that was a necessity, but yes. no, no longer. No, no longer. Right. That's right. It's a necessity to go in the opposite direction now. Steady state economics is saying there can be no more pie growing. That's right. <laughs> the pie can't get any bigger. That's right. So it can. It? it can, but only at the expense of somebody else. Okay. So, for example, Which China has can grow. Which always been the case. No, no. Uh, for some time, for 200 years or so, you could have the growth of the English economy and that of France and that of Germany and that of the United States growing at the same time. All because, on the backs of uh, black slaves. Yes, Africa, that's though, what happened. Slaves. But it needn't have been that. It needn't have gone that way. Okay. That's what. So so, but now we can't. We can't do right. it anymore. So that's a given. All right. So we need to wrap it up for this session. So how? But I, I want to say ahead. one more thing, and that is there is another analogy that Herman Daly uses, which I find very, very useful, and that is, okay. So if it isn't collapse, what is there? Is the steady state, and so he describes it in terms of if an airplane is in the air. There are two ways of getting it to the ground. One is to have it collapse <laughs> okay. and everybody gets killed. Right. And the other one is to land it. Oh, okay. So we're talking about getting the economy from a growth pattern to a steady state in the sense of, of a landing rather than waiting for it to collapse where we don't have any means then of recovering. Okay. Because that collapse then is not like other collapses where uh, we could recover or certain societies uh, perished, but certain other ones you know, persisted. As That's why we're all here. But now it seems as if 
A, if we collapse, everybody will collapse more or less at the same time. And so there's nowhere else to escape. Right, right. That's why some people escape with suicide or escape with tales about being uh, lifted up to heaven for those of us who are uh, good enough to be lifted up and the rest remain. That's the idea that we can't save ourselves. Either we're lifted up with good guys or we collapse. And what we're offering is a third alternative that we need to put whatever wisdom, whatever caring, whatever insights we have into bring that train down safely to the ground. Okay. So steady state economics must address the economic inequality that's in our world. Yes, I Uh, can't see. If it doesn't address that, we're done for. Okay. Yes. Anything else before we wrap it up for this session? I want to say it as bluntly as I know how. As an elder, I'm 78 now, I can't say, I can't claim that I love people's grandchildren if I'm not doing anything about getting to steady state. Because I'm convinced that if we don't get to steady state, those grandchildren will be sacrificed. I think they already are, but we'll... Okay, so... All right. Well, we're going to close it off for this session, and we will continue. Yes, thank you very much. Alec, I want to remind uh, anyone that's listening that I'm posting all these references that you're referring to the books uh, on my website, which is www.amosephraim.com. And it's under a separate category of the Boulder Bolding, which has all the podcasts and uh, references. Also want to mention, uh, Alec wanted me to mention a website called um, the Center of the Advancement of the Steady State Economy. Economy, which has uh, regular articles and those kinds of things. And you can find that at steadystate.org.